following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. Well, I'm really happy to tell you that today's sermon will be given by Marielle Jensen-Battaglia. I can't wait to hear what she has for us. And so let's invite Marielle and welcome her this morning. Good morning, everyone. So I'm very excited to once again be in front of the congregation as a part of the College of Preachers. That's a program Pastor Scott, Pastor Scott, good start, Marielle. Pastor Scott has talked about before in the past, uh, a college of preachers here does not mean an academic college, but rather a group of lay ministers that Pastor Scott has sort of help bring out of the congregation and are bringing the word of God to artisan church. So last time I was up here during Advent, I was able to share from my personal experience uh, with an eating disorder. And today we are going to start a new series, which is completely being run by the College of Preachers, which with support from Pastor Scott called Healing and Harm, the church's role in mental and physical health. There's been a little bit of Facebook buzz, social media buzz ahead of this event, and I am excited to help, um, to help bring it into fruition. So I want to start by saying my interest in this topic, I am a healthcare provider, I have my doctorate in physical therapy, and as I kind of thought about the different ways that the church has dealt with healing in the past and the way that it deals with people going through various stages of healing, I realized that this was something as a member of the congregation I would really like to hear about. I think it can be and has been at times a way that religion in the church has been misused towards people going through the healing process. So I want to just give you an overview of the series. Today's sermon is going to set a historic and spiritual precedent for the church's role in serving people with mental and physical health issues, as well as discuss how the church can be more inclusive towards a specific group of people who have more chronic long-term disabilities. Next week, we're going to hear from Dr. Autumn Gallegos-Greenwich, expounding on this idea and discussing the implications of moving from a view of exclusion to inclusion and hospitality in the church. She's going to talk a little bit more about mental illness and mental health disorders next week, as well as what it means to be healed in a world that is essentially broken. The third week of the series, February 8th, we are going to have a panel discussion, which I'm so thrilled about, uh, composed of people from the community who either serve people who have mental and physical illness or disability, and then also people themselves who have mental or uh, physical impairments or disabilities. And that's going to be just a, a great time to hear directly from the people that we want to be including, that we want to reach out to um, as a church. So I, that's what the sermon series is going to be about. Here's what it's not going to be about. So my plan is not to stand up here and tell you whether or not miraculous healing can take place. It's not to stand up here and tell you that the Bible is a scientific or medical textbook. So I'm not going to be addressing health and healing from that standpoint. Not to say that miraculous healing never takes place, but I want to focus instead on what it means to be a community of believers in a world that is broken, where we want to include, where we should include people who may never experience healing in the way that most of us think of healing. 
So this is not a new idea, healing in the church, health in the church. Uh, This goes back to biblical times. In the Gospels alone, Jesus is recorded as having completed over 30 healing events for individuals and many more for groups of people. Sort of a one sentence, he went into this town, healed all the people, and then continued on. This continued with um, the mission of the 70 and the apostles throughout the Gospels and past biblical times. And then into the Middle Ages, there is a lot of history of people living with such a daily experience of death and disease and disability that these patron saints begin to pop up. This is the, the church globally, the Christian church globally. I wanted to give some examples of patron saints for different illnesses and uh, health conditions just to make a point, but there are so many that I could not condense them into the time of the sermon. For epilepsy alone, there are over 40 patron saints. Not the same saint, 40 different saints. I don't, I'm not enough of a church scholar to know exactly why that is, but suffice it to say that when people think of searching for healing, when people think of health issues and wellness, They don't exclude the church from their thoughts in the time of the Middle Ages or even today. It's somewhere that they naturally look for um, for help. This continued into the birth of the earliest hospitals, which also occurred sort of in the Middle Ages. Many of the earliest hospitals were part of monasteries, were part of other religious organizations, because it was a place that people who needed food and shelter, who were unable to provide that for themselves, naturally came. They often already had illnesses, ailments, mental and physical conditions. The church then began acting as a palliative care provider, someone who would provide comfort and basic needs, not necessarily a curative care provider. However, over time, just through experience of dealing with people who had these issues day after day, there did become a number of clergy who were specialized in medicine, and that was a tradition for some time. Even in our own area, and this is fast-forwarding through a lot of history here, but even in our own area, there's a lot of precedent for the church's involvement in physical and mental health. Uh, in Rochester, we have St. Mary's Hospital, now a part of the Unity Health System, which was founded in 1857 by three nuns of the Catholic Daughters of Charity Order. It was in a stable, uh, a horse stable originally, and that, has, that was a, a way that people saw to bring their vision of healing through, uh, through their religious background. There are a number of other examples in the local area, but there are also some global examples as these Christian or religious-based hospitals start to become less and less popular. There are these gigantic medical missions. Many of you have heard of Samaritan's Purse. They do Operation Christmas Child, but they also do World Medical Mission, sort of a Christian Doctors Without Borders. There's Center for Medical Missions, Christian Healthcare Ministries, Compassion International. The list goes on and on. There's these big organizations that are very present with us today, and all of them in their mission statement talk about healing as being sort of the hands and feet of Jesus, being Christ-like, and that's their one of their reasons for providing these services, medical services around the world. I am not here to tell you that any of those organizations are bad. The very opposite. These organizations have stopped 
so much suffering. They have brought hope and healing to many, many people who were desperately in need of it and enabled lots of communities of people to be their own health care providers. But there's sort of a darker side of the church in healing. If you do a fairly quick Google search for healing in the Bible, many of the top results, if not all of them, including professionally done commentaries and lots of blog posts, are going to tell you that faith is equivalent to healing. I want to be careful what I say here, but I think that that model and the model of the so-called cure and charity perspective can be very harmful to a couple of groups of people within the church. So let me tell you what I mean by cure and charity. I mean cure as in assisting someone. If I assist someone, eventually they will no longer need my assistance because they will be cured. By charity, I mean that I'm giving my time, money, or expertise to someone who's in need of it. On the face of it, there's nothing wrong with that. If someone were in the context of health, so if someone had an acute medical issue, let's say a broken arm, I could be charitable to them by paying for an x-ray, maybe a surgery if needed, a hospital stay, even outpatient follow-up care. That would be charitable. It would even be Christ-like in a way. But then once they're done with their healing from the broken arm, they no longer need my services. They kind of they return to the state that they were in before. The problem with this is that we have large groups of people who, for various reasons, will never experience that type of cure. I'm thinking of people with conditions like multiple sclerosis, major depressive disorder, cerebral palsy, autism, people that will not be cured in a traditional sense, hear and see the church acting in this way and can feel excluded. There are some false assumptions with this cure and charity model. Not everyone who adopts the model makes them, but it's dangerously easy to do so. It sort of assumes that the Christian or the church, and not the person with the disability, is the thing with expertise. So I'm going to help you get better because I know what's best for you. It also assumes that all people need to be healed in order to be whole. There's nothing you could want more than to not be in the state that you're in right now. And finally, it assumes that, that people with disabilities or people with serious health problems really truly desire or want to be different, which is not always the case. So as we will discuss today, applying this, this cure and charity approach to people, especially people with what I'm going to, from this point on, call disabilities, just for the sake of it being an easier term, especially for people with disabilities, it contributes to an exclusionist view, where if they're reading through a lot of these commentaries or seeing sort of what's in the Christian popular culture, it may seem like God's will is to heal, except for you people. And that's kind of a dangerous way, I think, to go forward as a church. Let me give you an example of what I mean here. I was given a book to read in preparation for this series, and I can't pronounce the author's name, so I apologize, by Stanley Hauerwas and Jean Vanier called Living Gently in a Violent World. It's a book about large communities. These are places where people with developmental disabilities and people without developmental disabilities cohabit together. They are uh, religiously funded organizations. And this This is an interesting passage from the book that demonstrates a powerful point. 
One of the authors is teaching a class. He says, at one point during the class, people were sharing about their various spiritual experiences. A woman who was deaf, Angela, began to talk about a dream that she'd had. In that dream, she'd met Jesus in heaven. She and Jesus talked for some time, and she said she'd never experienced such peace and such joy. Jesus was everything I had hoped he would be, she said, and his signing was amazing. So for Angela, heaven's perfection did not involve being healed of her deafness. Rather, it was a place where the social, relational, and communication barriers that restricted her life in the present no longer existed. What had been a disability now became the norm. That which had led to exclusion, anxiety, separation, and the loss of opportunity now became the precise mode in which Jesus addressed her. Unfortunately for Angela and other people like her, we do live in a society that equates youth and health with value and worth. People with disabilities are frequently referred to as their disability. Jim, the paraplegic, these are hard for me to say, sorry, Lana, the bipolar, etc. These people are placed in a separate but equal category. And sadly, this exclusionist society often extends to the church. I feel strongly that it is both within our power and our calling as Christians to reach out to people in our communities with disabilities, not because we have something to give them, but because they also have something to give us. I just want to say that we don't have to look too far to do this. In Rochester, this is from ACT Rochester's 2015 analysis of uh, poverty in the city, there are over 30,000 people in the city of Rochester proper who report having a disability. Of those 30,000, 42% meet the federal definition for living below poverty level. Put it another way, 22% of Rochesterians who are below poverty level have a disability. And it would be easy enough to say that these folks should just get a job and go to work, but the community barriers are enormous. There are offices that refuse to make reasonable accommodations to persons' workspace, tasks, or schedule. There are recruiters who've decided not to even consider someone before they even walk in the door just based on their appearance. Worse yet, there are people who have disabilities that may not be visible, who are assumed that they should be able to complete all of their tasks without any accommodations, when that's not the case either. And then if someone does manage to get hired who has a disability, there are more economic barriers. There was a somewhat recent expose by the Democrat and Chronicle talking about a part of the Fair Labor Act, which has been passed as part of our legislation, that states that there is no minimum that you can pay someone who works for you who has a disability. And they have been developed these workshops where people who have disabilities work for wages as low as 85 cents an hour again, excluded from society. How are you supposed to climb out of poverty with that type of background? Uh, If you felt that this legislation was unfair, you could go out and make a vote, try to elect someone who might change things for you. But unfortunately, even there, people with disabilities have another barrier. The New York Disability Vote Network has reported that in the 2012 election, out of 35 million people with disabilities in New York State, only 15.6 million of them made a vote. Now, that could be from any number of things. Uh, It could be from lack of access to polling stations, lack of access to help filling out forms, or maybe just lack of education, that there are issues out there that directly impact people who have disabilities. But either way, hearing those statistics kind of really gets me fired up. It makes me feel passionate and kind of 
um, that this is something, this is an issue that the church should not overlook. Well, what has the church based their actions on in the past? When I started looking into the biblical basis for dealing with people who have mental and physical health issues, I found, again, that there are over 30 acts of healing by Jesus in the gospel, and that the common assumption is that Jesus literally physically healed people to be like Christ. That is what we should also do. I would like to say today that I don't believe that that assumption is completely true. I think there's a better way for us to look at some of these texts. We're going to start with um, a text in Matthew, Matthew chapter 9, verses 2 through 8. And I will read this one. Um, We'll see about the other two. You can follow along. But for this one, it says, Just then, some people were carrying a paralyzed man lying on a bed. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. Then some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, perceiving their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven, or to say stand up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, then he turns to the paralytic, stand up, take your bed, and go to your home. And he stood up and went to his home. When the crowd saw it, they were filled with awe, and they glorified God who had given such authority to human beings." On the face of it, this, like many other instances in the Gospels, is Jesus healing someone. But I think that you'll find that Jesus is trying to do more than heal someone. And in the majority of the other passages, certainly the other ones that we'll look at, you'll find that Jesus isn't just doing a healing. Jesus is trying to demonstrate something. He's using the healing as a way to teach another key concept. In this case, I believe that he is doing two things. He's demonstrating that he is the son of God, that he has the authority to, to do something that no one else can do. And he's also changing the focus from the healing to the sin being forgiven. That's the harder thing to do. That's the thing that he's really come to do and the thing that's already been done. I'm going to come back to this in a moment, but to demonstrate a theme, let's move on to John chapter 9. In John chapter 9, it doesn't make sense for me to read one section because the story continues through the whole, the whole chapter, but I will summarize one portion of it. He's, Jesus is walking along on the Sabbath. He sees a man who's been blind from birth. His disciples ask him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answers, neither this man nor his parents sinned. He was born blind so that God's works might be revealed through him. He then goes on to spit in the mud, put the mud on the man's eyes, tell the man to go wash in a pool, and then the man's sight is restored. We could say that this is Jesus healing a man's lack of vision, but I actually think that he's doing something more. He's using that to demonstrate that sin is not hereditary, which was a commonly held belief at the time. Okay, this is a big change from sort of an orthodox perspective to a new perspective. He's doing this on the Sabbath, So again, demonstrating that we aren't strictly following the Sabbath anymore. And he's also doing the work of God in furthering the kingdom of God. If we read through the rest of the chapter, we'll see that he's placing the idea of fulfilling the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God above that of simply healing someone. 
As I said, we're going to come back to these texts, but for contrast, I want to move on to Luke chapter 10. Pardon me. Luke chapter 10 is the story of the Good Samaritan, and it's the foundational text for Samaritan's Purse. So it, it, it is a text that a lot of people have drawn from as a model for helping people who have health problems. The Good Samaritan story is not a story about Jesus healing. It's a story about who we should be helping and in what way we should be helping them. So who's my neighbor is usually how this story is framed. And we'll, I'll read this text out loud here, starting in verse 30. Jesus is replying to the question of who's my neighbor. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him. When he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, a form of payment, and gave them to the innkeeper. Take care of him, and when I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these three, do you think, was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? He's being answered here, the one who showed him mercy. And then Jesus says to him, go and do likewise. A little bit more context for this story is that just prior to this story being told, Jesus and the disciples had visited a Samaritan village or attempted to visit a Samaritan village and had been rejected there. So they weren't really welcome. They weren't allowed to stay. So Jesus is being very purposeful in choosing to use a Samaritan person as the example. So someone that the recipients of this story, the people who are listening to it, might have felt like that's the last person they would feel comfortable helping. But that's the person that Jesus is saying we should help, the person that we're going to be the closest to. Also, we've got some contrast between the priest, the Levite, and then the Samaritan in that they have slightly different religious affiliations. They're not people who would have gotten along normally, and they would have been seen as very distinct. But the focus is more on mercy than it is on the religious affiliation. I'm not a Greek scholar, but I did look up the Greek word for mercy. Um, It means compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone whom it's within your power to punish or harm. But in the Greek, it also has this context of meaning loyalty to God's covenant. Now, what do we mean, what covenant are we talking about? We've talked about a number of these different healing events, two that Jesus has done out of the 30-some-odd that he is recorded doing. And then this one that's not Jesus healing someone, it's an example of how to treat other people who maybe are in need of healing. And what we find is this emphasis on loyalty to a covenant showing of mercy. If we look back for a little more context in Luke chapter 10, again, verses 8 and 9, Jesus is giving the mission to the 70, and he says, whenever you enter a town and its people welcome you, eat what is set before you, cure the sick who are there, and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Jesus himself uses this phrase quite frequently, the kingdom of God has come near to you, 
meaning himself, meaning that he, his presence and his ability to do these things is an indication that the kingdom of God is at hand. So let's try to pull all of this together a little bit. Thank you. We've looked at these different texts, and we're seeing sort of some different things. One is that Jesus is healing people. He's setting a precedent for healing people. And the type of people that he is setting the precedent for are clearly people who others would have passed over or chosen not to assist. It shouldn't be a surprise, really, because Jesus also has the track record of eating with prostitutes and tax collectors, beggars, people who appear to be the farthest thing from someone that you would want to interact with. In his healings, he heals people who have leprosy, people who are chronically ill and impoverished, people from all walks of life, people who are slaves, people who have nothing to give him in return. If anything, I think that these healing passages are a message of inclusion. I think that's pretty safe to say. We also establish that Jesus is rarely rarely healing someone just for the sake of healing them. He's demonstrating an end of religious discrimination or division, perhaps, in the Good Samaritan story. He's talking about the end of strict observance of the Sabbath, the end of hereditary sin. And he's also arguably fulfilling prophecy in the way that he is healing people. There's a passage in Matthew 8 verses 14 through 17, where Jesus goes into Peter's house. He sees that Peter's mother-in-law is lying on the bed with fever. He heals her. He heals other people who are in the area. And then this is directly from the Bible. It says, This was to fulfill what had been spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took our infirmities and he bore our diseases. So now I think we can start to see two different themes. One is that Christ's healing is, I think, offering a message of inclusion, of seeing people who are not necessarily someone that you would like to interact with and then specifically picking them out and healing them. I think it's also a message of fulfilling a prophecy. That's one of the other reasons that Jesus is doing this. And then I think it's also a message of bringing about the kingdom of heaven. So we touched on that briefly. Pastor Scott is much more eloquent at talking about this than I am, but in general, I do subscribe to the interpretation of a realized kingdom of heaven. This means that the presence of Jesus on earth is, is a cause to believe that the kingdom of heaven is partially realized. Jesus stating the kingdom of heaven is at hand, referring to his own presence, means that the kingdom of heaven is not some faraway place in the clouds. It's not somewhere that we might eventually get to. It's arguably the present earth. And as the church, as the body of believers who is the body of Christ, we can act as an extension of Christ by being Christ-like, by being inclusive. I think that we help to bring about the kingdom of heaven, independent of whether or not any one of us has the ability to miraculously heal someone. I think that we can continue this tradition of inclusivity, of Um, moving beyond our comfort zones to reach out to people by viewing people with disabilities and disability in general a little bit differently than most of us have been raised to do. 
I know a lot of people in this audience do work with people who have disabilities, and so this might be review, but I think it's very important. I'd like to think of disability through the social model, which defines disability as the result of social and environmental barriers placed before people with mental and physical impairments that then results in a decreased quality of life. So this means that the same person can have the same physical issue and experience a very different degree of disability depending on their, their ability to be involved in their environment. So a common example would be, let's take a middle-aged man who has cataracts. If he lives in an area where he has good health care and he can afford that health care, he could have his cataracts removed. He could continue working, say he works an office job, and really not have that much about his life changed. If he lived in a country without health care or health care he could not afford, the cataracts could eventually blind him partially or completely. He would be unable to complete his daily tasks. He might need help for a lot of things. And at that point, he would experience a very high level of disability. In this example, the person and the physical problem stay the same. It's the environment that changes. This doesn't apply to everyone, but it does allow us to look a little bit more into a different way to talk about people who have disabilities. A different, it, it's a way of speaking, but it's also a shift in thinking, and it's one that I think can help us greatly. Uh, this is known as enabling language. So the person stays the same. It's the environment that changes. Instead of saying, some of these are hard for me to say, but instead of saying, Tom is wheelchair bound, we would say, Tom uses a wheelchair. So that's one example. Instead of saying, Laura is schizophrenic, we would say, Laura has a diagnosis of schizophrenia. Instead of, her child is disabled, we would say, her child has a disability. Putting the person at the center, instead of whatever condition might be affecting them, um, allows us to see what we can gain as a church from coming alongside people who are, this might be a cheesy term, but I do like it, differently abled. Okay? Moving from a potentially exclusionist perspective of charity, where we give help to someone because we think we can cure them, to a way that we include people, we invite people into a space, we're hospitable to them, allows us to form relationships and have conversations with people who have different health backgrounds than our own. I like this quote from the Henry Nouwen book, Reaching Out, which was Artisan Reed's book in 2013. He says, hospitality means primarily the creation of free space where the stranger can enter and become a friend instead of an enemy. Hospitality is not to change people, but to offer them space where change can take place. It's not to bring men and women over to our side, but to offer freedom not disturbed by dividing lines. So what type of conversations can we have when we move beyond thinking of a cure perspective to a perspective of inclusion and enablement? I think we can have a lot of good conversations if we start thinking in a way of enabling language, of person-centered language, and then moving beyond that to actually enabling people. I thought about this as I was preparing for the sermon. Imagine that one of us wants to borrow a hammer, and at the end of service we stand up and say, could we borrow a hammer? You would probably need a wheelbarrow to carry out the sheer number of hammers that people would give you. It's a very generous congregation. It's a congregation that wants to help. But it would be ludicrous if someone else in the congregation went to your house and built you a set of steps. You didn't ask for a set of steps. No one knows that you need a set of steps or that that's what you want the hammer for. 
They don't know if you want them on the front of the house or the back of the house, what kind of style, aesthetic, anything else. That's what we do, I think, when we jump to this conclusion of cure or even charity. We miss the conversation, which is, do you even need anything? How can I be a partner rather than this patron who tells you what, what is good for you? Um, this kind of thinking keeps the person at the center, and it also reminds us that the person who may need help or may want help is the expert in their own case. We are not. So even when you're working with someone who may have, in my line of work, may have very limited communication or cognitive uh, level, I'm not the one who knows what they need or trying to find out from them. So this hasn't been an easy sermon for me to prepare because on the face of it, I'm just struck by all of the, the information out there that says that Christ heals if you have enough faith and therefore we should have enough faith and everyone will be healed. It's so hard for me to miss that elephant in the room. But I think when we start to think about Christ's healing as in the Bible as a teaching tool, as a demonstration that he is the Son of God, and then instead of us focusing on healing, we focus on things like the story of the Samaritan, we can start to realize that I believe what God is calling us to, especially for people with disabilities, is in fact inclusion, not healing. Um, I've spent a lot of time talking about people with disabilities because this is a population I feel passionate about, and I also think it's a population that frequently feels excluded from the church. But this is not to say that an aspect of this sermon, of this whole series, talking about inclusion, talking about enabling people, cannot apply to people who don't have a, a clinically recognized disability. That would be ridiculous. And next week, we're going to hear from Dr. Gallegos Greenwich about a really different but similar perspective that people who have mental health issues may feel when they're faced with this same issue of healing in the church. And then following that, <clears throat> on February 8th, we are going to again have that panel discussion, and I'm going to try to spend a few moments after the panel discussion talking about different ways that we can become involved in the community, uh, helping people who have mental and physical illness or disability. So come excited for that, and there'll be an announcement next week also to talk about parking and access and that kind of thing. But in the interim, I just want to give everybody space to think about what I've said. It's not an easy topic. It's not, I don't have all the answers, but I think that if we just remember moving from the perspective of everyone wanting or needing to be healed to a perspective of trying to include everyone in an environment where that healing can happen if they would choose for it to take place, that that's one way for us to really open up as a community. Um, I'm going to have Pastor Scott, come up and introduce communion at this time. I want to thank everybody and really invite you back for next week for a really great discussion uh, with Autumn. Thank you so much, Mariel. Um, man, one of the things that is so exciting for me about this College of Preachers thing that we've been doing is that the expertise and perspective of the people in this group is so much broader and deeper than my own and this is no exception um, so I'm very excited for this series and um, for what's to come 
thank you so much for your wonderful words today. You've given us some major challenges, even if it's just the tip of the iceberg. Um, I often say that the communion table is the, the great leveling sacrament in the church. Um, Jesus offers and extends himself to each one of us, regardless of any of the things that may divide us in other contexts, be that race or ethnicity, health and wellness, uh, physical ability. Any kind of thing that would separate us is obliterated in Christ and in his sacrifice for each one of us. His love is for us all. And so that's why we always stress that this is the table of the Lord, not the table of the church. And we don't bar it. We don't gate it. We don't tell you that you can't come to it unless you're a member of our church uh, or unless you believe this particular line in the creed, which is the most important one to us, or any of those things that sometimes happens. This table is open to all who would seek the grace found in the body and blood of Christ. And so we're going to sing a couple more songs together. And guys, why don't you kind of make your way up here. Um, and uh, if you are seeking to follow Jesus, if you're seeking to partake of the food for your soul that is extended to you at the table, the table is open for you now. If you'd like to receive prayer, our prayer team will be here in the corner. And um, this is a new song that we're going to sing together. Uh, it's an absolutely gorgeous song written by Damien Rice. I don't know if he intended it for use in the church, but we are going to use it in the church. <laughs> and uh, it's got a great ending that I think you could sing along with, even though it's going to be the first time you've ever heard this song, many of you. Um, and so I'd encourage you to listen as you receive communion and uh, sing along if you, if you catch the words and the melody good enough to do that. Um, Continue to, to worship together at the table and wherever you may be. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.